0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, this is Sam Charrington, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Uh, this week, I've got Scott Stevenson on the line with me. Scott is co-founder and CEO of machine learning and AI startup DeepGram. Scott, say hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Sam. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I think the best place to get started is to maybe uh, have you spent a little bit of time talking about your background because you come out of physics, right? Not uh, audio, speech, uh, and all that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We are, um, you know, DeepGram is an audio AI company, but uh, our background, or most of the technical people in uh, DeepGram, our background is in particle physics, or at least some form of, you know, deep physics. And um, for me and uh, my co founder, Noah Shetty, we both were doing uh, particle physics before we started DeepGram, which was uh, look, searching for dark matter. And this is about. Uh, you build an experiment that sits uh, around, uh, miles underground, essentially, you know, like one mile, two miles underground. The deepest labs mm-hmm. in the world are two miles underground. And we were, our experiment was in the deepest lab in the world in Western China. It was called Panda X. And um, we built this experiment um, over the course of four years with a lot of other people, you know, with around um, two dozen other people. And with the help of the Chinese government. And <laughs> that's that's okay. an interesting story. Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, that and and the techniques that we learned in building this experiment, um, we figured out were like really applicable to audio, and the reason is that physics is very, um, at least particle physics at the very hairy edge of research, is still analog, and you hmm. you still read, um, you still look for particles using analog detectors. They're called photomultiplier tubes, and the signals that you get out of these are. Um, just a a waveform it looks a lot like an audio waveform but it's at a much higher sampling frequency and um, those those waves uh, that you that are contained in the output of these photomultiplier tubes the signals that are in there tell you the signature of the particle that you're seeing so you might see a single photon you might see a, a big splash of a muon in your detector Um, But it's all contained in those waves. And so what you have to do is extract that information from the photomultiplier tubes and then make a make a guess, you know, did you see dark matter or not? And so we got very good at doing that. Um, And it's actually really interesting because the the state of the art in particle physics is essentially a lot of humans sitting down, figuring out how do you extract information from these signals? And, you know, maybe you've heard of, uh, like, the Higgs boson being discovered a few years ago, a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, that was done by thousands of scientists sitting down and saying, hey, I... Really want to find the Higgs boson? How do I? Uh-huh. <laughs> how do I make? How do I make cuts um, in my data? How do I process my data to figure out or to make my signal to noise, you know, good enough to find these particles? Right. And um, this is actually a lot of this um, hard manual labor of figuring out these cuts is um, is done by uh, machine learning now. So people will build boosted decision trees or it's it it, that's not necessarily the realm for neural networks um but uh boosted decision trees and other um statistical machine learning techniques people are figuring out how to sort of automate this but that's like the world that we came from essentially and we were on that you know we were in that area thinking like man this this sucks let's let's automate this you know how do we automate it and (laughs) Um, because I, I feel like a machine already just going through, like, here's another plot. Did this work well? Did that not work well? Like what went on? And it's like, this could all be done with a machine. And so, uh, a lot of the people that are in DeepGram now, we were all sitting at University of Michigan thinking, you know, how can we make machine learning, uh, or how can we jam machine learning into physics, particle physics, and then like
0: extract something out of it. And did you – how far did you get down that path? Did you actually complete the jamming or did you end up uh, leaving and, and going off to start DeepGram before you fully applied ML to the particle physics?
1: Yeah, so it's it's um, varied for the different people in DeepGram. So I did finish my PhD. I finished uh, about two years ago. And uh, Noah, who is my co-founder, uh, went to a PhD program at Stanford, like actually didn't even start it. Um <laughs> He came out to the Bay Area, and uh, we were working on DeepGram at the time, and we got a little bit of funding, and he was like, you know what? Let's not do this physics <laughs> thing. Um and anyway, uh, but the, a couple other people in DeepGram um, either finished their PhD or, you know, got a master's uh, and left after that. But uh, we were definitely successful in uh, sticking machine learning into a particle physics uh, analysis pipeline. And uh, in particular, for Dark Matter, what we did is reconstruct events uh, in a 3D uh, position uh, the, reconstruct the 3D position of the events that are happening inside. So the w- the way that this works, I mean, the it's like not to go too deep, but uh, a particle detector is just the at least for dark matter, it's just a tub of liquid, and it's a tub of cryogenic liquid, so it's very cold. But mm-hmm. and it's put two miles underground, and it's under a shield, and it's all very you know like particular, but it's all it's just a tub of liquid, and that tub of liquid has a lot of um, atoms in it, and those atoms uh, happen to be in this case xenon. And okay. uh, you, cho- you choose xenon because uh, it doesn't interact with other things. It's a noble gas. So just like uh, helium or neon um, or argon, it doesn't really interact. It doesn't form molecules. It doesn't really have like a chemical decay to it, nothing like that. Um, but, it, but it's really big. And scientists surmise that uh, dark matter particles like really big particles, essentially. So you find the biggest okay. non-reactive particle that you can. You put it into a tub. And then uh, that tub is just sitting there with um, tons of atoms, and it's just waiting for a dark matter particle to hit it. It's just sitting there, just you know, that its hmm. sole purpose in life is to get hit by a dark matter particle. And almost none of them have a dark matter particle hit it. Um, but but that's what's happening. And those uh, those signals that that atom that got hit, as soon as it gets hit, it uh, flies through the other xenon atoms that are sitting around in this liquid and it creates a puff of light basically and Hmm. stirs up some photons essentially and it's like 10 photons you know it's a very small number Um, but you have these detectors that can detect the single photons and those single photons are bouncing around inside your detector and they're finally getting picked up by these single pixels essentially and you need to figure out like where was that event right Okay. and so you're talking about like Really low statistics, pattern matching, and how do you make some kind of algorithm that says, hey, this is what the pattern that I got, where do I think this event was? And that's, that was really successful in, um, compared to what a human can come up with, essentially. And the other is determining the energy of the particle, how, how, big, you know, how big of a splash was it. That's a little easier to do, but uh, machine learning uh, you know, made it a little bit better.
0: And what about, uh, boosted decision trees lent themselves to application for this problem domain? Yeah.
1: So boosted decision trees, one thing is that they're like fast to train. So, um, that, that was really good. They also, when you have a low, a low number of statistics, or at least a fairly low number of statistics, um, they can still do pretty well, um, compared to like a neural network that would overtrain or something. So, we were very hot at the time on doing boosted decision trees for that type of, uh, problem. And I still think it's actually very good. Um, and, uh, people are still using this, you know? So, so yeah, it, it lent itself very well to doing that. Uh, the, the, the reconstruction, and it also lent itself really well to doing, um, uh, a determination of whether it is a signal or background. Was it a dark matter particle or not? Because, right. actually, be- because the signal that you see in this photomultiplier tube in the waveform, it actually does look different. It's like a little bit noisier and it's a little fatter and things like that, but it's only hmm. kind of statistically noisier and statistically fatter, you know? And so these uh, machine learning algorithms can do a better job um, than our just standard hard cuts um, a human can still do better than the than the machine learning algorithm. You can look at all of these, but you don 't want to look at billions of events
0: interesting, interesting. Do you have a sense that there are maybe more? Uh, That physics, people with a physics background are somehow disproportionately represented in the machine learning and AI community. I'm only working on a small data set here, sample size. But uh, I recently interviewed Josh Bloom, who uh, is an astrophysicist and did uh, an AI startup. Have you seen that at all? Yeah, I I, I do think so. And um,
1: I... I run into a lot of people that have a physics background. And I think the reason um, that these these two fields are kind of coming together is that AI is kind of just information physics the way you Mm. the way you try to solve a problem is exactly the same as how you would solve a particle physics problem like get a ton of data try to figure out what the trends are try to see what the outliers are like how do you how do you actually tackle a problem it's identical i feel like i'm doing the
0: exact same thing as physics but i'm just doing it with voice now super interesting um, so before we get too far from it, you mentioned, uh, a lot of your work happening in China, uh, and that there were some stories there. Uh, how did, I, how did, how did that happen?
1: What's the connection? Yeah, there was just an upstart uh, experiment as I was starting graduate school. This experiment was just sort of being circulated as a possibility. It wasn't even, there wasn't really anything going on yet. But people were like, hey, there's a spot underground in Western China. It's two miles underground. It would be the deepest lab in the world. And it's not a lab yet, but we're trying to petition the Chinese government to turn it into a lab so that we can put a dark matter experiment there. And I was like, I am so in you know this whatever whatever that is that you just said let 's do it you know and and that 's actually what it was i I went to my advisor, you know the, my new advisor at the time I was like let 's do it he 's like, you know this isn 't really a thing yet and i 'm like i don 't care let 's do this right and it eventually turned into a thing um it involved um china's an interesting place, so i 'll say that um but the at first the there were failed talks to turn this into a lab and the it, they went something like this uh, well okay to back up just a second like why was this lab there anyway or why was this uh, spot there they were building the world's mm-hmm. tallest hydroelectric dam right next to it and they have all these tunneling machines and these mountains are made out of marble and marble's really easy to tunnel through so they like swiss cheese the mountain you know they just cut a whole bunch of holes in the mountain. And um, there just happened to be a tunnel that is two miles underground. Um, and this is where they were diverting water through. So it's, it's actually a new type of hydroelectric dam where they have a really tall dam part and then they extract energy there and then they go where there is a river that would go around a mountain like a long distance around a mountain instead they just uh-huh. tunnel through the mountain and so the the mountain itself is now a secondary dam essentially oh wow yeah you can look this up it's the Jinping 1 and Jinping 2 dam in China and it was just completed like a year or two ago um but yeah they That's what they were doing. And so we were like, hey, you know, this is a great spot to do it. And we went there and said, hello, Hydroelectric Dam Company. Um, We're like 10 scientists, and we'd love to put an experiment down here. And they were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And so we were like, hmm, how can we work this a little better? And we were uh, in in cahoots with uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University, which is you know one of a, a very um, well known technical university in China. And okay. uh, we went to them, and it, well, we were um, in collaboration with them. And so like along with them and the leadership there, they they said, oh, okay, we'll talk to some people essentially. And so the the educational system in China has a ton a ton of power. And so they went to uh, the Hydro, the the like leaders of the edu- edu- education community went to the hydroelectric dam company and said, "Hey, do you guys want to do this?" and they said, Sure so <laughs> so they have some sway there.
0: It always helps to have the right people involved
1: yeah, absolutely and so so that 's how that all got started and, and from that from that yes moment to having a lab to actually work in it was less than nine months they had to you know, get dynamite, blast out a lab, like turn it into an actual thing with cranes and uh, like yellow railing, so it looks like a James Bond layer. You know, they had to do all of that, and they did it in in less than nine months. And we were in there building our experiment right after that.
0: And were you physically uh, in China in this lab, or virtually connected to it uh, from Michigan?
1: So i i would physically I would physically go there, like um, four months out of the year, essentially. Okay. Yep. And that was, again, like for me, I grew up in a really small town in Michigan and, um, I, I kind of figured out that like the world exists, you know, outside of like a 3,800 person Uh city or city, I shouldn't say city, you know, tiny town. And, um, I, you know, was it I went to, you know, undergrad in in Missouri at uh, University of Missouri, St. Louis. And then I went to uh-huh. graduate school at University of Michigan. And the the world is just getting bigger to me, you know. And and then now I'm like in China, halfway across the world, totally different people, totally different uh, culture. And I was loving every minute of it. I thought it was great. And that's awesome. Yeah, and there was there there was so much to learn um from being over there, but one of the biggest is that uh they have very few roadblocks. Essentially, if you want to get something done and you have the resources to do it, you will get it done very quickly. And hmm. and so that's why we could start the experiment. Uh, well, you know, that's why they could build a lab in 9 months. That's why they could build this dam in 5 years. That's why um we could start our experiment like design the experiment, build the experiment, put it in, run it, etc do all of our data analysis all in under four years, you know, because they, they were just like so helpful in removing roadblocks. So, so that was, that was really nice to see coming from the U S
0: that's awesome. That's awesome. You, uh, so you worked on this project, finished your PhD, um, connected with your, your co-founder was also from, uh, Michigan. So you guys yeah, knew he each was. other before.
1: Yeah, we were working on that experiment together. Um, he's a decade younger than me, so, so okay. essentially he came into University of Michigan at like 15 or 16 years old, and I was, you know, like an old gradu- old jaded graduate <laughs> student, you know, at that point. And uh, started working in our lab, and, you know, he is just very good, and we hit it off and would spend uh, a lot of time together um, outside of physics, too, like mining Bitcoin or building drones or whatever, you know, just <laughs> kind of having fun and doing technical stuff together. Uh-huh. And
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you guys, uh, you guys started this company. The you you talked about how the problems were similar, but how did the what was the genesis for you know the idea behind what you're doing at Deepgram?
1: yeah so so noah definitely has to take credit for this my co-founder so i was a little naysayer at first um where he he wanted to start recording his life so he built a a little device out of like an intel edison um or a raspberry pi one of these that it just had a battery Wi-Fi antenna, microphone, and a you know processor on it, essentially. And mm-hmm. he set it up so that it would record 24/7, and basically every minute make a new audio file and just sort of dump it into um, storage. And then whenever it came in contact with Wi-Fi, it would upload all of it. So oh, essentially, wow. so essentially, he was backing up his life, backing up his audio life at least. Uh huh. And I was like, what are you going to do with all of that? You know, you trust me, your life's not that interesting. You know, in real time. <laughs> you're not going to go back and listen to it again, right? And he's like, yeah, whatever, right? And so he recorded, like, two weeks of his life, uh, you know, several hundred hours. And, you know, you're sitting there at the end of it thinking, like, oh, yeah, okay, now this is a real problem. How are we going to go back and find anything that we want to hear? And so we started – we did the first thing that you would think of. Um, hey, let's turn this into text, you know, speech to text. And – um when that didn 't work very well, because uh, this that 's just like the state of speech to text essentially where mm-hmm. if you, if you have a microphone that is not super high quality and it 's not right up in somebody's face and the person is not enunciating really well, then you 're going to get pretty bad word error rate, meaning you know it 's not going to be that accurate right right and and so, so that's, that's a situation for like almost all of the world's audio. It's not great audio. Um, but in this case, all of the audio was like that. And we are like, okay, this speech to text thing is not going to work. Um, can we do something better? Maybe, maybe somebody in the world out there like Google, hey, they know how to do search. They know how to do audio. Maybe they've made some kind of API or something that can do this audio search, right? And so we started mm-hmm. playing around and looking there and we just couldn't find anything. And uh, we found papers, actually. Papers from, like, 2008, 2009, where Google wrote about this type of thing, like doing search and audio. Um, their technique was to turn it into text and then try to search in it. And, it. and it worked pretty well when it was on a reduced domain. So they did, like, uh, political speeches. And uh-huh. Yeah, and they had fairly good results, but, you know, when you try to generalize it, it doesn't work very well because everybody speaks a little bit differently, and political speeches are well-recorded, and, you know, everybody's enunciating, you know, so so it goes pretty well then. Um, But if you try to do this in a general sense, it doesn't work that well, and we we emailed or, um, you know, set up a Skype call um, with one of the engineers on the paper and said like what are you guys doing now because um you know some years had passed you know surely uh-huh. you guys are working on this problem right and they're like no 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 we gave up on that we're not doing that um, <laughs> we're we're just trying to make our speech attacks better okay and- um we're like huh okay so it's still not very good that doesn't help us um so so we started just working on it ourselves we were like okay you know we know signals we know uh, machine learning we know how to deal with lots and lots of data and uh let's see if we can make some kind of search engine for audio and over the course of about 4 or 5 months we went from you know very poor accuracy meaning like maybe 20% of the time you'll find what you're looking for to uh-huh. uh, 80 or 90% of the time finding what you're looking for. So that's wow. like going, you know, state of the arts, 20%, you're at 90%, you're feeling pretty good. Um, so so that's uh, the, the genesis of DeepGram, essentially. We're like, whoa, this has a lot of applications. And at the time, you know, we were coming out of academia. We're like, hey, students can use this for lectures and whatever. But when we started to think about it a lot more, we're like, you know what? The world, like the big audio source in the world the huge data lake of audio in the world is like recorded business calls so uh-huh. like customer service calls and things like that just call center stuff and they're all really low quality and nobody knows what to do with them essentially and we're like man like deepgram could be a massive company um if we do That's this right, right. yeah
0: Well, I think the other killer use case is uh, I don't know if you're married or not, but my wife and I always have this conversation where, oh, I just told you this or no, you didn't say that or whatever. If I had his device and recorded all of our audio and then could easily go back and prove whether I said that or not, uh, there's got to be a huge market for that. I I
1: love I love this use case for deepgram because yes I feel the same way actually we've run across a lot of people though that are like oh no this will make things worse <laughs>
0: It probably would because my uh, I think I, I probably think I'm right more than I actually am, much more than I actually am.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, but no, I, I think there's a regularizing effect there that if you know that there's something uh, recording, maybe before you say, "I know I said this," you'll actually go back and check or something. You know, so <laughs> I, I think I think it could work out. Um, and actually, we do we do kind of think about this problem. Um, I think that Mark is not really ready for it yet. You know, if you just yeah, put a recorder yeah. on everybody. And said, you know, now we're backing up everybody's life and everything you say is recorded. Uh, I don't think people right now are going to be super into that. (laughs) But it might come. Um, and, and I kind of hope it does. Like like for me, I wish I, I had it. And we do have these devices like laying around our office from those days, you know, where I think, uh-huh. man, if I was just wearing that all day every day, um, then that would be great. Of course, they're very heavy, so we don't do that now. But you could make it much smaller. And yeah, they're probably a better lot, better lot
0: lighter than they were then. Yep. Um, interesting. So you described the... The frustration that you were having with uh, trying to do this and the state of the art being turning the audio into text and then running a search engine against that text, is the implication then that you guys are not uh, using text as an intermediary?
1: yes that is true so um we we do build an index just like you would so you know this this is sort of the terminology that you would say before you built an index out of text right well we're not building an index out of text anymore we're building an index you know like actually out of activations in a deep neural network you know Uh, so so activations in a representation that's deep in a deep neural network um the best way to think of that, though, is that you are doing something kind of like searching through phonemes. So, phonemes are mm-hmm. like the uh, the alphabet of speech, right? Um, but they're kind of a human. Um, they're like humans have assigned those. Like those, these are the forty phonemes, or these are the fifty three phonemes. Like you don't have to do that; you can just have it be defined by the data. And um, mm. so that that's what we do. But if you look at the if you look at what these match up to, it's
0: very similar to uh, phonemes. So that uh, statement that you quickly uh, went by kind of blew my mind a little bit. You're indexing, you're building an index out of activations deep in a neural network. Uh, Elaborate on that a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the output of a neural network is is again just an activation essentially, um, and what you're doing is you're forcing it to like in the case of a speech recognition, you're forcing it to guess like what is the word being said at this time, sure. um, or or in the case of like doing some multi-class um, uh, uh, network that's trying to guess, you know, is this a handwritten zero or handwritten two or something like that? Right. That th- then the is the trying to guess decision. that yeah and right. so it, if you just sort of back up one layer from that it's still pretty close to to that output you know it's just some like linear combination you know, that has been stuck through an activation um, uh-huh. to get to that output and so so you know you can you can think of um, images where it, at the very top or it depends on how you think of neural networks but at the at, near the input of the of the neural network um, there's it's looking for edges or round things or something like that, right? And then as you get deeper, Mm -hmm. it's looking more for, like, faces or trees or something like that, right? And the same thing is happening in audio. And now it's looking for things that are kind of word-like or kind of, like, portions of a word-like, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so so those activations are what we are interested in.
0: And how deep are the networks that you're typically using? And how do you know which of those activations to tap into or capture? And uh, is that static or dynamic? Does that change uh, based on the utterances? Or how, how do you figure all that out?
1: very, very great question. Um, you can, so there's several ways to go about this problem. You can just say, literally let the data define this and, um, uh-huh. go to town. Um, that, that does work pretty well. Um, you can, you can sort of get a boost in accuracy, uh, a little bit of a boost in accuracy. If you, if you pin it at first, like when you're training, you might pin it to phonemes or you might pin it to some, uh, larger subset and, uh, then, then remove that restriction. So it's sort of seeded that it should have learned something like this, and then now it sort of builds off that knowledge. Um, so so that's kind of how you can guide the network, you know, you're pointing it in a direction that's approximately correct, but then you relax that and allow it to pick the things that are, that are working best. Um, the things that we're working on right now to make this even more accurate are instead of uh, a word target... Uh, you are searching for like, or sorry, not searching. You're you're trying to force the network to guess like a topic or a part of speech. You know, is it a noun or a verb or something like that? And you do all of these things at the same time. So your network is sort of branched out, and it knows. You know, I'm I'm trying to guess words. Fine, I'm trying to guess a topic. I'm trying to guess all of these things. And so when you when you force that um, uh, restriction on the network, then it it actually it. it you can control kind of what the activations are, are the information that
0: the activations
1: are holding. You can kind of control that by the target.
0: Uh, So how, uh, can you say how deep your networks typically are? Are they what you would think of as, you know, very deep, you know, tens, hundreds uh, or more layers, or are they relatively shallow? Yeah, we're in the tens,
1: um, in the tens category. And um, yeah, we, so we we have had a lot of success in that regime. If you go deeper, you need um, a lot more firepower on the computational side, sure. And you, and you actually and you need um, more engineering on the like where do I put my skips and where do I put like everything right, like that. Right. You know, and um, architecture
0: becomes more complex.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, um, so we're. A, Uh, a little we're like an eight person team so we don't uh, yeah we 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 try to uh, minimize some of those uh, engineering bottlenecks as much as possible Um, and we've seen very good well I guess I guess another way to say this is that if the state-of-the-art is 20 percent and you're like in the 80 and 90 percent range with the networks that you have (laughs) you know then like you could spend a lot of time turning it into like 92 percent accurate um, by making your um, making your network a lot deeper or something like that but uh, right. we, yeah, we, we don't focus too much on that yet until we have the pressure um, to do that.
0: Okay. Okay. And so with the network in the tens of layers, then it sounds like it's, you have a pretty good sense based on your architecture of where, uh, you know, what layer is the phoneme layer versus, I don't even know names for the, the other um We don't know names would- either. <laughs> Honestly, like this, this
1: is, it would be really, um, it, this hasn't been explored as much as images, you know, there, and you know, there are sort of reasons for that. Like, where are the data sets to do this? You know, um, also humans, I think are not as interested, um, or I guess it's harder to, to ingest audio than it is images, images, you know, you like instantly see it. You're also entertained by the images that you see, that you see, but the, um, if you hear audio that you're not super interested in, um, you're like you you your eyes glaze over right away, right? And so mm-hmm. labeling the audio data is expensive and time consuming, and you can't just like click through a bunch of things. And now you've labeled a ton of images, uh, you know. You can't just click through a bunch of things and label a bunch of audio files, you know, like that right, doesn't right. work and so so those those are kind of the problems that audio faces, but also uh you can't point to things and um you can't you can't point to things and say like that little edge feature right there is important because you're hearing it right it's it's just mm-hmm. not we don't have that visualization capability, and so uh it's a little more challenging in that regard so so yeah, we don't have names for this stuff either you know um there there are linguists out there in the world that probably have some <laughs> some names you know uh-huh. but, but we just look at like a 2d fft um you know a spectrogram of the audio and say like "Ooh, i can sort of see what's going on there and you just kind of treat it like it's an image and uh, think of it that way
0: okay uh so the other interesting um the interesting use case that occurred to me when i first saw your stuff was you know, I've got a bunch of audio in the form of podcasts, podcast interviews, and uh, I'd love to find a way to make that more accessible. And one idea that I've had for a while is, hey, it'd be great if I had a, a bot, like a Facebook Messenger bot or a chat bot or whatever, where you know, you you pull this thing up and it's a, and you can ask it, hey, I want to find Twuma episodes about conv- convolutional neural nets. And it will, you know, look in its index and tell you, oh, check out, you know, episodes, you know, thirteen and five at times X, Y, and Z. Uh, it sounds like you're saying that your stuff could be a part of building that. So, what would the process be to, you know, to get to what I'm talking about? Forget all the bot stuff, but you know, just in terms of the voice search engine piece.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. The um, the the, men- the mentions is a part of it, and topics I- is another part of it, um, and it, that's exactly the type of problem that Deepgram solves. So you have uh, you have a lot of audio, right? And you have you have listeners that don't want to sit through you know twenty hours of audio trying to look for that one little tidbit um, of information that they're that they're interested in that time, and um, that is what Deepgram solves, and that is actually. Um, kind of a a, a really interesting interactive experience once you finally do it. You know, so like mm. when we first built DeepGram and we made, you know, the search engine and it actually found moments where we were like, whoa, there, I, I, this is exactly what I was looking for. You know, it's a totally, totally different experience than what you would feel if you had tried to do this with speech to text. And so, so yeah, we're, we're very into solving that type of problem. And, and the way that you do it, uh, with DeepGram is we, um, We provide a an API, so you go and sign up at Deepgram.com and um, create an account, and there you upload your audio and you give us the query that you're looking for. So if you're looking for convolutional neural nets or CNNs or uh, convolution, you know, put those keywords in, send it to the API, and you'll get the results back of all of the uh, mentions that were in your audio. And uh, if you want to make that go even deeper to it's where it's more topic based rather than keyword based then you like sort of work with us uh, for a custom API endpoint to build a model that is more um, tuned to the topics that you care about
0: and that is essentially you guys working in a professional services or whatever capacity to build some um, <clears throat> I don't know what, is that, what does that process look like from your perspective what are you actually doing behind the scenes to make the, the topical stuff work
1: yeah, yeah, good good question. Um, the So the general stuff kind of works right off the bat. Hey, you, you want to search for a keyword? You know, we have a lot of data that we've already trained on. And even if your keyword isn't in there, we can find it because it's essentially a fuzzy search. Um, but if you want to do this topic modeling, uh, then what you do is give us labeled data. And so in your case, it would be... Um, I have I have all these episodes and they were the contents of these episodes uh <laughs> you would have to know this um you know yeah we talked about convolutional neural networks in this one um we talked about you know recurrent neural networks in this one and boosted decision trees in this and you know we talked about productizing in this one and uh you just put those simple labels in and um then you train a uh, model and it doesn't have to be a deep neural network either at that point, because you have such a small amount of data, you probably do some, something like a boosted decision tree. Um, But you train this model to do that topic prediction based on the search in your, in your audio. And this is actually getting really into the weeds, but the way that it actually works is we utilize the search for that topic modeling. So our, our search is is the best in the world. It's the most accurate. um, And and if you train a model with a target that says, here are these topics, and I want you to be able to predict these topics, and I want you to be able to generalize to other audio files, then our our model that we're building, whatever it is, the, but that topic modeling uh, model, it is going through he- and it's not doing any heuristics whatsoever it's sort of exhaustively searching all the possible phrases and saying like which ones help and which ones don't and it's recursively eliminating the ones that don't help and and it's arriving on things to search for that are very good mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be a single search term it could be 10 sing- uh, you know 10 search terms and it also might be the non-existence of a term it's like you know if if you're talking about these 10 things and this other one then it's some other topic you know and et, et cetera and I don't even know how it works, right? I, it, 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 that's that's how it works, and then in the end, you look at the output and you say, like, these are the things it's saying search for, and these are the things it's saying don't search for the area. You know, you don't want these to exist, and that's how the model works. You know, and, and it works extremely well. So, um, so yeah, that's that's sort of you know how the sausage is made.
0: And how much how much data do you need in order for you to to start getting? Uh, interesting results, both from the basic search and, the the topic modeling, or is the fact that you guys have already trained your model? Like, well, let's start with that question. Um, is the fact that you guys have already trained the model on the data that you already have? Um, does that mean that I don't need to have some, uh, some specific level of data about my domain in order to get good results?
1: Yeah, it, in some cases, that, that's how it works, where, you know, if you have sort of like a broad topic, like, is this about sports, or is this about politics, you know, um, then, then that data is sort of already lying around and, and, and incorporated into a model. But if you're talking about niche markets, you know, um, then you probably want to supply something, and uh, then we'll, you know, build a model on top of that, but that doesn't the data that you supply probably isn't the only training data that we're using. You know, we're, we're mm-hmm. just, we're just supplying that it's it's essentially a form of transfer learning and then we're like changing the target of the model Mm -hmm. and so what am i supplying then yeah you would supply like audio with some tags um so like here's an hour-long audio and here are the 20 things we talked about or here are the 10 questions i asked or something like that
0: okay and the the neural net can just figure out what's relevant and what is uh, and kind of map those to the tags exactly even given uh you know i would imagine a fairly limited or what how much how much audio and tags do i need to give the model for that to be useful for it
1: for it to be useful to a like a consumer that's searching for something, um, because right. they're fairly error tolerant, actually, right? Like if you get if you get one out of two wrong, that's not too bad, as long as one of those is okay, right? As long as one of those is what you are actually looking for. Hmm. So you probably need something like um, fifty or one hundred um, different labeled files, and you'll get results that are similar to that. If you have around a thousand labeled files, then um, then you get results that are more like you know ninety percent accuracy.
0: And these are hour-long files or shorter?
1: It it kind of depends on what you're searching for, but um, they're generally mm-hmm. in like the 10 to hour-long range. Um, you'll need more files if it's only like
0: a minute long. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so, the, so then what you guys are offering is a, a service... Um, And that exposes an API, but you also have done some work around uh, an open source framework. Um, Let's talk about that for a little bit. So uh, why don't you walk us through what you've done there?
1: Yeah, we're we're extremely pumped about it. It's called Kerr. It's open source. You can go contribute to it. It's on GitHub. Um, but the the idea behind Kerr is that uh, years ago, you know, around a decade ago, GPUs came onto the scene for neural networks. Um, data started to become available, and it became a, a really smart idea to start training neural networks on GPUs. And the people doing it back in the day knew something about GPUs. It, it, you know, in order to accomplish that task, you you had to have some like domain main expertise in order to pull it off in a good way. And uh, NVIDIA started to pick up on this and said hey, uh, we're going to make CUDA a framework that allows like C developers to get a little handle into the GPU and be able to train things that way. Or yep. be, able to, be able to use the uh, GPU for matrix uh, multiplication and things like that. And so that's like another layer. You have the bare hardware and then you have like CUDA and uh, then you have um, like uh, Brian Catanzaro uh, making CUDNN so that it even works better for deep neural networks, right? But this is Mm -hmm. still all very um, low-level type stuff, and then uh, you know, outcome other frameworks like Theano or uh, Cafe or um, TensorFlow, and those are another abstract layer on top. They make it more human palatable, right? And right, right. They're they're much more palatable for the um, developer or computer scientist that you know, like really knows their stuff, right? And um, and that and that's totally fine, and they work very well. Um, what we what we have found out though, at working internally um, at Deepgram, is that working in those frameworks still is very it's very slow for us to uh to try to do experiments, essentially to try new model architectures, and then and then s- see the result. Because we are not we're not necessarily training time limited. We're uh, it, we would really love to be training time limited. We are engineering limited, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the time that you're putting in to sort of cook all of this up and make sure do all the error checking and whatnot to make sure it's like training the way it's supposed to. We're like, man, why don't we just make some other framework on top? Let's just stack another framework on top that is more abstract abstract. abstract that sort of doesn't care about the back end and it it doesn't care you know if you're using theano or tensorflow or whatever you can just switch it with a flip with a flip of the switch and um if if something's faster fine whatever but like all we really want to do is describe our model we want to say hey the input is going to be this audio it, then we're going to have a convolution, a two D convolution, and another two con- D convolution with a batch norm, and then we're going to have some re- a, re- a few recurrent uh, layers. Those are going to have batch norm too, and then we're going to stick those out into you know a dense that then predicts at every time time slice which character is going to be there, or which word is going to be there, and so that's how we want to think of it. We don't want to think about like Python code and like mm-hmm. how do we like put all of that in there, and so so that's what um, we started working on at deepgram is like. How do we do that so that we can multiply our engineering effort essentially? you know um, I just go in and I change a few settings and and then start running my network again and then go off and do something else and that's that's exactly what Kerr is. It's a descriptive deep learning framework, and um, you know we have examples on how to do image classification, examples on how to do speech recognition. Um, with a network that's very similar to Baidu's deep speech model and uh like lang- uh, language modeling and things like that and and it's all in this descriptive format um it's still not like don't get me wrong like deep learning is still not easy because um right because there's a computational problem there, and there's a data problem there. Like, how do you get it into the format that you need? You know, how do you collect the data? How do you clean it? Uh, everything like that. But the model part, you know, once, once you have your data and once you're all set up, the model part is now, like, so much easier for us using Kerr. And so so we thought, you know, um, this is kind of a competitive advantage. Yeah, it is. Um, but we have gained so much knowledge by... Um, using open-source software and talking with people very freely, sort of in the deep learning community, that, mm-hmm. you know, this tool has been so valuable to us, let's just release it. Like, we're we're probably going to get more, you know, than if we just kept it to ourselves, you know? And we right. actually have. Like, we, we released um, the Curve Framework, and within, like, weeks, somebody had added multi-GPU support, you know? And I was like, whoa. Oh, wow. These people are serious, right? And <laughs> so... So yeah, and and this is also another way to like, um, if you're if you're a uh, an AI company out there in the world and you want to hire engineers, you know, this is another way to find good ones, and they could be across the world. And mm-hmm. so so it's like we're sort of we want to we want to be giving to the community. We also just want to be. Um, we want to be part of that uh, conversation because I think we have a lot to add, essentially. And um, I, th- I think that the deep learning community, there's so much demand to... Um, there's so much hype, first of all. Um, but there's also... There's a ton of demand for on um, talent. And there's a ton of demand for the the type of critical thinking you need in order to solve these deep learning problems. You don't have to be secretive. You don't have to be like, this is our secret soft, that, that, whatever. No, everybody is like... Talent limited. They're computationally limited. They're data limited. They're mm-hmm. not like good idea limited. So, right, right. so yeah.
0: The you mentioned it's it's declarative. That's one of the the main things it's doing. Are you have you created like a DSL to define your neural net, or is it a different uh, type of expressed differently?
1: Yeah, okay, great yeah, great question. And the way that you interact with Kerr is you pip install it and um, so so it's you know written in Python and uh, you can use it as an API just as you would keras or something like that where um, you know you're programming in Python and that's just how you use Cur and that's totally fine. Okay. Um, but sort of the DNA of your model is contained in what we call a cur file and that is yaml okay. or a json. And so so that did, that contains like your hyperparameters, your model architecture, like how you want your data to be supplied and things like that. Um, And a lot of that is boilerplate that is already... um out there in examples essentially. And so you just like use a curve file that somebody else has put out there in the world and then just edit it a little bit in for your purpose essentially. And so yeah, that's how it operates. Um just basically YAML files and if you want to do um like a deeper uh surgery, then you do it in Python using the API.
0: Mm. And does it uh, can you uh, does it sit on top of any of the other frameworks, or can you lev- how do you leverage the work that's um, being done on you know TensorFlow and all the other frameworks out there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I should have said that earlier. It does, um, it supports Theano, it supports TensorFlow, and it supports PyTorch. And, um, maybe we'll support other backends, um, since, since, uh, like, Deep Learning 4J is, uh, is working its way into Keras now, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll probably be supporting them soon. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of how it goes. Um, if, if you have a high-level API that would fit into something like Keras, um, Uh then it'll fit into Kerr as
0: well. Okay.
1: Yeah, and we've and but we've already done the legwork for those three, you know,
0: TensorFlow, Theano right. and PyTorch. Awesome. And you mentioned uh you mentioned this already, but it's not just for audio, it's for images and basically anything that you're trying to use a deep neural net uh with.
1: Absolutely, we all that we do at Deepgram is audio. That's true, um, but the net, but the cur uh, you know and the networks that you can train using cur are agnostic. It doesn't matter. You know, you can do sequences, you can do audio, you can do you know text, audio, images. You know, cook it up and you'll be able to do it. Um, we just had a hackathon um, last weekend, and uh, people were doing all sorts of things. You know. Uh, Music, uh, edit editing videos on the fly, so that you know your cat will look like a van Gogh as it's um you know cra- <laughs> <laughs> crawling around and things like that you know like they're and they're using they're using Kerr to do these things so so yeah it's um it's it's sort of agnostic hm
0: uh that's very cool very cool um and so you mentioned uh the Baidu deep speech stuff was that the uh, was that the inspiration for Kerr or to what extent do you – is your uh, – is the DeepGram work, um, you know, your product based on that research? Sure. So our the
1: models that we use um, to – to build our indexes and to ingest audio are extremely similar to the deep speech networks. Um, you have a convolutional stack and you have a recurrent stack, and the target is uh, characters or, or words. In um, the deep speech case, is characters, but mm-hmm. but nevertheless, the the architecture is extremely similar. Um, and so the networks that we supply, like incur, or sorry, the uh, examples that we supply incur, um, are mm-hmm. extremely similar to what we use. Um, but but we we have tried to make networks that people are already familiar with like they can go read a paper and figure out how it works right okay. so that so yeah and we'll you know we put that into the example file as well saying like hey if you want to read about the architecture this is where it came from so right. so that's yeah we, we're not trying to um, confuse anybody about like how it works so so we sort of stick to the things that you can go out and look at a paper for um, program sure. has has not written um a a paper on what we're doing yet um it's kind of in the works always um but you know we we really would love to but you know that when you have when you have like businesses to uh you know to take care of and uh you know customers i guess to take care of and um and only you know eight people then, then you, that kind of gets thrown right. by the wayside right right
0: are, are there any standout use cases for uh for this approach and DeepGram, anything that you're seeing uh, as, you know, kind of coming to the fore in terms of what people want to do with it?
1: Absolutely. Um, from from the business side, um, there's uh, fraud. Fraud detection is a really big one. Uh, where people will call into financial services companies and try to, um, you know, try to get money from them, essentially try to take money out of your account or use, you know, get a credit card sent to the wrong address or something like that so that they can take advantage of it. And there are sort of patterns um, in this. And you can, the these companies have, you know, uh, million, hundreds of millions of calls every year. And they're trying to find, they're trying to correlate these things and say like, hey, we know that fraud happened on these calls, etc. Can you like help us find where that's happening you know like every day people are coming in, calling in trying to defraud us can you at least give us an alert so that we can look at those harder you know and and that's just uh, that's that's one of the channels um that that ha- like provides a lot of value uh, essentially to the, the to the world you know because if, if there's lower fraud you know then uh, everything right. becomes less expensive for everyone essentially um right. but there's also like a quality assurance aspect to this and and compliance aspect. Um, again, this is still in calls where, you know, are people just saying the things they're supposed to say? You know, are they having good responses? You know, do customers have uh, nice interactions? Um, and having... It, it, the way that companies deal with this now is they pay humans um, to look at maybe anywhere from 1% to 5% of the calls, and in, generally this is outsourced where uh, you send them you know, a random selection of your calls, and then you say, like, tell us what happened in these calls, and they'll report back with a rubric of maybe like 10 or 20 different things, and the quality will be pretty low. Mm -hmm. And that's like the only source of truth for these companies about their customer interactions that happen through phone calls. And so that's the type of thing that, you know, DeepGram is trying to help with. We, we take like that QA data that you've sent out to have humans label. We'll help you figure out which of those labels are actually good. And then we'll build a model based on those labels to predict all of your audio essentially, you know, to predict the uh, contents uh, of all of your audio. And then you can take your QA team or your compliance team or whatever they're doing, you you still have hundreds of these people, like, listening to all these calls, you point them in a new direction, you know, so they aren't doing the same, like, rote thing over and over, they're, like, actually using their brain to do things that humans are really good at, which are, like, creative things, like, figure out, you know, a new way to, to find fraud, rather than just sort of listening and uh, hoping that they detect it randomly, you know, Um, so we, this is, this is, like, um, where... Deepgram has a huge impact, I think, or has the uh, ability to have a huge impact, is just automating that entire process. Um, so for for the com- consumer side, we are um, we're not putting as much effort into making a product like like Google for the internet, but for audio, I right. I wish we were. Like actually, this is a product, and somebody should build it using Deepgram. But um, <laughs> but yeah, and we have built demos of this uh, where. Mm-hmm. Where you just uh, scrape a lot of YouTube videos, and then you're able to search it um, using Deepgram's tech. Um, but, but I think um, from a like company. Health perspective, like in other words, Deepgram not dying in two years um, and not having to raise like two hundred million in the process of that death. Um, hey. <laughs> well, you know, it could go a lot of ways, but but essentially, um, I think that product is 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 like available and it's something to test. I think that um, the, just the greater human world right now is not necessarily ready ready for it at this moment, but you right. know, in the next couple of years, uh, that's what we're going to expect. We're going to expect that all of the content in the world is searchable that, you know, when I think of like a movie quote, or when I think of something that I listened to in a podcast, or when I think of some interview that I saw on YouTube, and I think like, oh, yeah, they talked about this, and they talked about that, I should be able to search for it, and I should be able to find it. And people will start demanding that soon. Um, but yeah, we haven't spent, we, we did some, um, some market research on this, you know, um, to, to figure out is, is this an area that we should spend our effort right now, but it just isn't yet. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll start doing that, you know, in the next couple of years, but, uh, it's, it, it's not our focus yet. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Um, well, this has been a, a great conversation. We, we talked about Kerr and that's open source and we'll put a link to the GitHub in the show notes. Anything else folks should know to uh, look for or how to get in touch? Yeah, you can, you can
1: get in touch with DeepGram at, uh, on Twitter, at DeepGramAI, or you could send a message to me um, at Scott at DeepGram.com. I am not shy about throwing my
0: email out there. So if you want to <laughs> contact me, just, just go ahead. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Scott. It's been great having you on the show. Sam, I appreciate it. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. During this interview, you may have heard me mention my previous interview with Josh Bloom, whose company Wise.io was acquired by GE to help them permeate machine learning and AI throughout that company. If you haven't already listened to that show, which was number five, you should because it was a great one. But even better, you should plan to attend the Future of Data Summit because Josh will be speaking there on building AI products and running them in production. Really, you don't want to miss the summit, so check it out at twimmelai.com. And if you work on machine learning and AI for your company and you think you've got an interesting story to share, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm finalizing the agenda for the summit soon, but I'm always looking for interesting user stories. This podcast is full of great quotes. Don't forget to share your favorites for one of our Twimmel stickers. You can share them via the show notes page, via Twitter and via our Facebook page. The notes for this show will be up on twimla.com slash talk slash 19 where you'll find links to Scott and the various resources mentioned in the show. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.